0: This is an ABC podcast. You know how sometimes when you're at home and you're a little bit bored and you're looking at pictures of animals on the internet and you click on one and it takes you to a local marketplace type website Spin. where they're selling spinifex hopping mice. Spinifex hopping mice, what the... This is a little animal that's meant to be in the Australian desert. It's like you've got a guinea pig, a kangaroo and the fluffiest chinchilla, chopped them all up, put them in a mixture and then shrunk them all down into the most perfect little creature. But what are they doing here in my area and is that even legal? Welcome to What the Duck, the program from ABC Science, where I try to get to the bottom of burning questions that confront us in nature. And I tell you what, I get asked questions about this topic all the time, and it is a hard one. Why can't I keep an Australian animal as a pet? Well, number one, Australian animals have a reputation for being able to kill you, and some of them actually can kill you.
1: And we got him when he was about 30 centimetres long. He's about 2.3 metres now, so he's got a fair old growth on him. Trent Dewitt is from Catherine
0: in the NT and he's had his pet crocodile called Old Mate for seven years now.
1: When you come to feed it, you get a quick wake-up call when you hear a drumstick being chomped in half in the blink of an eye. He means a chicken drumstick, not a rhythm stick and you hear the power of their jaws, sometimes he'll miss the drumstick and you'll hear them slam together. That really um, yeah, opens your eyes and, and makes you realise that they're definitely not a, um, a pet you can get out and roll in the uh, grass with. They're something you've got to respect um, and yeah, keep your distance from them, that's for sure.
0: Wait, wait, I take that back. It's not a pet.
1: People have pet birds and that, and they can't really cuddle them, but it's more a fascination about the animal itself. And, and yeah, respecting it and watching it grow is, is a pretty cool thing.
0: I mean, what makes a pet? Does it need to be cuddly or companionable? Well, it's a different kind of relationship for Trent and Old Mate.
1: They haven't been around since the dinosaurs for no reason. They are very aware of what's going on, and, and yeah, they're definitely not something to be messed with.
0: Old Mate the croc never leaves his special enclosure that Trent built for him, and it's a bit romantic, really, because Trent wants
1: to grow old with him. Old mate's going to be part of us for a long time. I reckon um, I'm going to build something special when I get older where I've got a deck and a veranda and I reckon he'll be cruising around underneath me when I'm about 70 and he'll be roughly the same age and um, we'll probably just move on together, I reckon, him and I. This
0: is sounding like some sort of suicide-packed set-up, Trent. Blink, if you need help. But in some ways, pets really are a bit like cult leaders, aren't they? They rule our lives, they occupy our conscience, our every waking thought and extract a tithe in vet bills and treats. They buy you T-shirts to wear that say Crocs, Rock and the like. But, I mean, crocodiles aren't your average pet and let's be truthful. When most of you are riding in to me to ask about keeping Australian animals as pets, you're not talking about Crocs you're generally seeking a cat or dog alternative and that almost always leads us to things like quolls.
2: Hmm. I'm Mike Archer. I'm a professor of Uh, Mike Archer is a paleontologist. I didn't determine to become an advocate for native animals as pets. It just
0: happened. So the story goes, he was in Western Australia writing his PhD and
2: someone says to him, I've got Western quoll babies. Would you like to try to raise one? Next thing I know, she turned up with the most intoxicatingly beautiful little white-spotted quoll. Uh, It was so cute instantly was heart melt country here. It was a staggeringly wonderful animal in terms of every attribute of its behavior. When he would come out of the bedroom in the evening and the cats would take a look at him and they would jump on him and they would beat him up. But when he got to be about the size of a cat, the tables completely turned. He was twice as fast as them twice as smart, very strategic. And after a while, the cats realized it was their turn to go hide. And you'd almost hear him chittering away and laughter. And even, even you know, he's, he was a, the call was a carnivore. If you go to the textbook, it says, yeah, they eat meat and they ate animals. Well, he ate everything. I, I often had to pull him out of the garbage bin and he'd come up with a rotten cucumber in his mouth or whatever. If it had food value,
0: he was into it. So the Western quoll is sounding pretty good here, but there are downsides, even for Mike Archer, who was completely wrapped around this quoll's paws.
2: The only problem I did have was that he was just full of energy all the time. When he wanted to play, and that was almost all the time, as soon as he woke up in the morning, he'd come out of the sock drawer, that was his favorite place. And if I didn't immediately start interacting with him, he'd actually he'd pull the covers aside. He'd put his nose under my hand and keep flipping my hand until I finally wake up. But then eventually the guy who owned the flat sort of came up and he said, are you trying to drive me crazy? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're dragging chains all around the floor every night and you're just trying to drive me crazy, aren't you? And he had no idea in the next room my call was sound asleep in the sock drawer. I've kept about 30 different kinds of native mammals. And my experience with some of them is that they're not perfect. You know, I had a nail-tailed wallaby, Harry the nail-tailed wallaby. Well, Harry uh, just had a sexual obsession about anything that was vertical. Um, it was my legs, it was tables, it was everything. Actually, Harry got away. Um, somewhere in the forests in Brisbane is a mad nail-tailed wallaby then <laughs> probably other other kangaroos terrified of this guy.
0: So, if anyone spots an extremely horny little nail tail wallaby, see if it answers to Harry.
2: So, I would immediately say there are many reasons for thinking carefully about what animals you'd put on the list as potential companions for people.
0: Mike makes it sound like a fairy tale, like he's a Disney princess surrounded by friendly but wild creatures. But there's actually a lot to consider when it comes to native animals as pets, because things can go really wrong. None of our native animals are suitable to be pets. Christy Newton is with WIRES, an animal rescue organisation. Now, these are the people you might have called when you found a baby bird or an injured roo on the side of the road. The carers look after all sorts of native animals that find themselves in sticky situations none of them are
3: suitable really for example the gliders which are a common pet in america They're nocturnal, so they're not even going to be awake and wanting to play when you are. They smell horrendously. I'm sorry, that's offensive to them, but they do. They make crying noises at night when you're trying to sleep. They're not domesticated and they belong in really complex family groups. So if you have one on their own, they've been shown to be really affected mentally and that can result in self-harm.
0: So I have to ask before we move on though, because what, what does it actually smell like, a sugar glider? <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: very
3: funky is what I would Ooh. describe it as.
0: It makes sense that each animal has its own smell. But of course, there are people that would argue, right, that an animal that has a strong social lifestyle like a sugar glider actually is suited to being a pet because they form bonds. They want to be with something, someone at all times.
3: Yeah, and that's that's a good point. We just aren't the right species to do that with them. I think you can see animals bonding to humans, you know, it ha- happens very successfully at some wildlife parks and I think that's why people see joey mammals for instance and they bond with even their carers they're absolutely gorgeous and they're cute and fluffy and they stare into your eyes and but they don't stay like that for very long a couple of years ago I was called out by a family in the Blue Mountains and they had unfortunately hit the mother the mother had perished but the joey had lived and they took the joey home and they had two little kids and a dog and they raised the joey as a family pet and all was good for a few months until that wombat started to mature and get those natural instincts he started charging the dog and charging the kids and we got a call saying you've got to come and get this wombat it's aggressive
0: The wombat story makes me, it's very sad, but it also makes me laugh because wombats do have this reputation for going through puberty and turning into assholes, right? Oh, um, fully, yeah. (laughs) They're like the worst idea of a pet in the history
3: of ideas of pets. They're terrible. So that's just one of many stories. Wise has been caring for wildlife for 35 years and we just see this so often. It's the lack of knowledge and the lack of awareness. They have very specific diets. Just last week, we had three bandicoot joeys who were really young who someone took into care and tried to raise, but whatever they were feeding them had done such damage to their digestive system and gut flora that all three died. We just couldn't do enough to save them. And that's really sad.
0: What about a potential roll-on effect here? Could having the desire or a growing desire for having native animals as pet actually endanger wild populations of those animals?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think especially when you're talking about things that are perceived as valuable, one of the accepted risks of doing this is that there will be poachers and we're talking about some species that might already be on the endangered list. That's really scary as well. And it's not saying none of you can care for them. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that to do it, we have to make sure that everyone could care for them and give them the best life and provide all of this nourishment and environmental stimulation that they would have. And Mm. that's just never going to happen in a domestic setting. We honestly get a call more than once a week of someone that's tried to keep an animal as a pet. And it dies. Mm.
0: Well, and but is that the thing is, uh, is the missing link here education about how to actually keep these animals?
3: Mm, I think if it was ever going to happen, there would need to be so much done. Not only public education, but food availability, the proper housing, and also vets. There are, there are not a lot of vets who can treat wildlife.
0: It's a huge gap. Well, there's a good point. So we better talk to a vet.
4: My name's Dr. Anne Fowler. I am owner and the veterinarian at the Adelaide Bird and Exotic Vet Centre. Anne told me she has trouble finding vets to work full
0: stop, let alone vets that have the training necessary to look after specialised creatures,
4: like some of the large Australian parrots. One of the great things about being a bird vet is that I still get patients that are older than me. When I think back,
0: I can remember cockies and galahs in little cages on doorsteps, in aviaries in backyards, bobbing their heads and yelling obscenities. This is the sound of parts of my childhood. But they're not actually necessarily happy sounds.
4: And, yes, that is the memory I have of one of the relatives' sulphur-crested cockatoos growing up. The one-by-one-meter cage, cocky cage as they're called, sitting on the ground, died of sunflower seed only. So those animals are still out there. They're what I call legacy animals. They're often into their second or their third home at this point because the humans are dying around them, you know. You get your your 80-year-old bird when you're 50 and you're not going to be there to see the end necessarily.
0: Yeah, if you're planning on getting a parrot, especially a larger one, then you also need to get a lawyer because you're going to need to write that parrot into your will. And you also need to make allowances for behavioural needs that are way more complex than first meets the eye.
4: Um, Look, I think the challenge is is that it's believed that pretty much all Australian parrots have the intellect of a two-year-old child. Now, some of your listeners are going to have been through the two year old child stage. So um, some of us have never left it. So when you have a two year old human child, it does grow up, it does leave home. Well I hopefully sorry mum. But we're talking about an eight year old child who still has the intelligence of a two year old. So needing daily interaction, needing daily care, needing needing daily enrichment, still needing a good diet, not able to choose a diet for itself. You know, if I was a two-year-old child and able to choose my own diet, I would have been raised on chocolate. Ditto. So I think as we talk about having Australian animals as pets, the whole point is that some animals are better than others. Now, we have a domestic cat. Very few of us have domestic tigers, Texans aside. We have domestic dogs. We don't have bulls. We don't have coyotes, do we? We don't have fennecroxies so when we look at you know 70 odd australian parrot species for example alone there are good pets in those species and there are pets that are maybe not ideal so as we come to a bird like the budgie and the cockatiel literally some of the most common species across the globe in terms of pet ownership for birds dealing with small compact birds we're we're dealing with birds that don't make a lot of noise we're dealing with friendly birds and if you like the bite isn't that hard Um, and you know a bird that's gregarious and wants to be part of a flock and a family that we have the winners and the losers in that I do find the debate interesting because literally, you know, I've been talking about this for 30 years now and people kind of bring it up every two or three years, like, oh, let's have Australian mm. species as pets. And you go, all right, like the budgie I saw today, the cockatiel, the bearded dragon, the blue tongued lizard, the carpet python.
0: Yeah, good point. There are several successful Australian species that are already kept as pets all around the world. They're just not in the looming cat and dog replacements that shade this whole discussion. So, it's true, some animals might be suited for our needs, but what about conservation needs? Is there any value in having animals in private homes? Christy Newton
3: You know, one argument that has come up for keeping native animals as pets is the belief that if people own them, they will have a great appreciation for them in the Mm. wild and thus improve the conservation effort. But I'm yet to see the evidence of that. I I think that if we make them pets, we actually devalue them.
0: Mm. There also is that interesting question of the conservation value of animals kept in captive situations. Um, you know, we'd be preserving genetics maybe, but really taking away something that is core to what that particular animal is by taking it out of its environment. I think people talk about the five freedoms quite a bit when talking
3: about animals as pets and those freedoms are about the environment and their ability to move and their diet. But if a python can't curl its way up a tree and, you know, restrict around a trunk and do its beautiful thing, is it really having any kind of quality of life? If you put a wombat in a backyard or in a cage without the ability to dig, we know what what that takes away everything that our little wombat, you know, bulldozers are. There's no point in doing that unless they have habitat to go back to. We need to protect the habitat. We need to start doing these things about climate change. Yeah, we need to absolutely make sure the population of the animals are there. But unless they have trees to live in, water to drink, places where they can burrow, they will go extinct anyway. It doesn't matter how many breeding programs we have. If they have no places to live, there's no hope for them. It's so important.
0: All right. I mean, imagine the tigers and lions from Tiger King don't have a habitat to be returned to. So in the end, what are we keeping them alive for? You know, maybe we're raising more issues than we can actually solve in one podcast episode here. Because there's just so much to pets and pet ownership, and especially when it comes to Australian native animals. We need a situation that's good for the animal. They're not easily mistreated. There's not too much risk of poaching. They need a happy and healthy life. They need to be able to be bred successfully and easily. They have dietary requirements that are achievable. I mean, the perfect Australian native animal to have as a pet just doesn't exist. Native Australian cockroaches. Oh,
5: my name's Dr. Perry Beasley Hall. I'm currently a researcher at the South Australian.
0: Perry does amazing work with invertebrates and is one of Australia's foremost experts in underground critters. Perry is basically the coolest person ever. Why I often keep insects as pets, or and, and she's got cockroaches as pets.
5: In this little container here, we have a few females of a species called Geoscaphia salatatus, and these are common Australian soil burrowing cockroaches. And they're essentially, if you picture, um, a very big sultana on legs.
0: So you've essentially got a little plastic container like you might take your lunch to work in. And inside the plastic container is some delicious looking sort of hummusy stuff, which is actually like, and by I don't mean hummus the dip, I mean hummus the stuff you find on the bottom of forest floors.
5: Yes, that's right. So these... Adults, <gasps> what is the um, leaves is moving? Oh, I think they might be wiggling around a little. Let me get one of the adults out and I can show you her. Oh, there you go. <gasps> so these guys are moving because I happen to be holding them in a quite bright environment and normally they live underground in burrows.
0: <sighs> they're so pretty. Okay, so what I'm seeing is... This. I think so too absolutely gorgeous dark almost like obsidian looking creature that looks like it's wearing a little shell it to me looks more like an upsized roly-poly and its legs are covered with little furry hairy protuberances and it's antenna going it's so beautiful i didn't expect it to be that beautiful isn't that horrible of me
5: Well, I don't blame you for thinking that way about cockroaches because most of the interactions we have with them are with pest species. So most people tend to associate cockroaches with being winged, kind of a a dirty brown colour. But really, this is the case for maybe, say, 30 out of about 10,000 species that we think might exist. And the remainder look something like this.
0: So you've got her on your fingers right now, and she is almost the length of your finger.
5: Yes. Um, So these species can reach up to about eight centimetres in length, and I just dropped her. She doesn't like that very much. Um, So they get very, very heavy, very large. Um, They actually represent uh, some of the heaviest cockroaches on Earth, and that's because they're full of all of these really strong, chunky muscles that they need to burrow underground. They feed exclusively on plant material, so in this case I'm feeding them eucalyptus leaves, but that can also include twigs, seed pods. They're not particularly picky, oh, wow. and they'll drag these down into their burrows to feed their babies.
0: So, if you put her in her container, what do you think she'll do?
5: She is going to decide to hide
0: from me, I imagine,
2: albeit oh, yeah, quite goes. slowly. <laughs>
0: That's actually so. You know how sometimes if you come across an echidna and the echidna senses that you're there, it often runs and shoves its head in like the nearest hole. And that's sort of what it did straight away. Head went in, and look what it's been a matter of 15 seconds, and she's almost completely submerged. How many cockroaches do you have in that container?
5: I have two adult females, but we also have a few little babies, which are about the size of a large grain of rice.
0: Oh, Now, okay, I've got to ask, you said you've got two adult females in there, but there are babies, so was this... Are we looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ? Was this oh, a I no wish. Um, no, unfortunately. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so something that, something that cockroaches and other animals um, related to them can do is that they can um, essentially hold babies in their body for a very long time before they give birth. So their babies look quite different to the adults. They're almost translucent, a kind of translucent beige and because of that you can see all of the food that's in their bodies so they're basically like little walking bags of chopped up
0: leaves (laughs) she's it's sort of adorable all the little rustlings that i can see but you said that okay they don't like light they're not particularly fond of being out in the light and being handled so what do you actually get out of keeping them as pets
5: I think it's just really amazing to be able to connect with an insect that we know is about 25 to 20 million years old and has really been in Australia longer than anybody else.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is pretty epic to have in a bit of Tupperware. And I'm uh, watching them and it's actually quite... I'm feeling quite chilled out, actually. (laughs)
5: <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's quite calming, isn't it? It's really nice to just observe them for a while. And people have said the same thing when I do outreach events, that they just are really relaxed by seeing them very slowly kind of meander into the soil. And, yeah, they're very, they're very calm animals.
0: Oh, uh, that is so cool. When, where do you keep them when, um, when they're not on, on the tally like they are at the moment?
5: Oh, well, it'll sound horrible, but they're actually quite happy in my pantry. <laughs> No, that isn't horrible. So they're quite happy on the top of my protein powder bottle.
0: I promise I've not been smoking the eucalyptus leaves or anything, but these little things rustling around and going about their business, it's super relaxing. So, anyway, this seemingly innocent question, should we keep native animals as pets, has no clear-cut answer. It's super species-dependent. It might involve us changing what it is that we actually want from pet ownership. Ooh, side note. Remember, check your local legislation for domestic pets wherever you are, and check your ethics too, obviously. Good to keep a tab on that. With huge thanks to Northern Territory Country Hour reporter Max Rowley for his croc audio and also Patria Ladgrove for her production assistance on this episode. I'm Dr Anne Jones and this is What the Duck. It's produced mostly on the lands of the Wadawurrung and Kana people with the help from experts from all over the world.
2: Oh, he was, yeah, we called him the little man. I, I, I have no idea why he got that name. I, I guess because he was male. It, you know, marsupials have a very conspicuous scrotum, you know.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio,
4: and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.